Previously on Storyological. <laughs> I like to imagine the New York Times listens to us. And the way I like to imagine the New York Times listening to us is that the paper itself is somehow hovering above headphones. a chair as though an invisible person is reading the paper. But there's a little smoking pipe in front of the paper, like the piper is smoking, a, uh -huh. which is ridiculous because if the paper catches fire, it's gone. Dangerous. You would think yeah. it would have more sense for its own health and safety. This is Storyological, a podcast about amazing stories that we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerud. And I'm E.G. Kosh. Uh, my pick for this week is Escape from Spiderhead by George Saunders, which is a story from his short story collection, The Tenth of December. And it was originally published in that bastion of absurdity and science fiction uh, and magical realism and miscarriages, The New Yorker. Uh, back in 2011, in case you needed to know the date for your time machine. Escape from Spiderhead. Uh, <laughs> I wrote down no summary. That's fine. Uh, Escape from Spiderhead is about a guy, uh, and he committed a crime at some point in his past and is now kept as a lab rat, more or less, in a facility with other more or less lab rats who were people that committed crimes at some point mm -hmm. and whose relatives or themselves were able to pay enough money to get them into the lab rat program rather than the prison program. Yeah, it, it uh, doesn't sound like it's a lot better. It's who knows, who knows, it's relative. We don't know how these things work. <laughs> who can say really? What the I penal mean, system is uh, actually uh, like in the time of this Well, story. yeah, as Emma says, it, it doesn't necessarily sound that much better because part of being lab rats means that you have what is called a Moby pack attached somewhere on your spine and what they do is they put different chemicals into your pack to pump into you which create different states of mind so the the inciting incident of this story is a repeated experiment where our guy jeff goes into a room there's a woman uh amnesty up in the spider head which is the control center asks jeff what do you think of this woman and jeff is like I don't know, she's fine, she's cool. And then they turn on the juice, and then suddenly it is the most amazing love connection he's ever had with anybody else. They turn off the juice, she goes back to being normal, they bring in another woman, they repeat, on and on. They are controlling humans as though they are fun little puppets to see what happens when they poke them. Uh, and the story is, is hilarious and horrifying, but then takes a turn into a deep existential despair when as part of this experiment to try to prove whether or not their chemicals are working and that it can induce love and then return a person back to a baseline where there's no longer any love they want jeff to look at the two women who we had relations with mm -hmm. uh he's very he's like you know i fucked her three times i fucked her three times why aren't i happy about this we know why you're not happy, Jeff. <laughs> Still, I just felt <laughs> a little bit sad. <laughs> we know why you're not happy. And there's this chemical called darken flocks that induces deep, deep depression. And Abnesti wants Jeff, the lab rat, to decide whether or not somebody will get it. Will it be Rachel or will it be whatever the other one's name was? I don't know. Heather. Heather. Or will it be Rachel <laughs> or will it be Heather? <laughs> That captures one of the things I wanted to talk about, which is the way the way this story escalates. It's broken into sections, and in the first section, which is is just two or three pages, Saunders lays out how this uh, lab rat setup works. We see quite an innocuous experiment where he where Jeff is given verbulase and something else that makes 
all of the nature around him look beautiful. And we just kind of, we just see him describe how beautiful it is. The escalation in this story takes it from this innocuous situation through, up through sexual relations with two women into a kind of moral quandary and and state of horror where not only is he made to try and choose between the two women as to who's going to experience this darkened flock, but then when he won't choose, he's forced into a position where he has to punch the button to give it to one of them, that his choice is taken away from him. And Oh, yeah, because there's, there's another chemical uh, called docile ride. Yeah. Uh, that will force you to do whatever the person tells you to do. And so he knows that if if Abnesti comes back and gives him this drug, that he will be forced to kill Heather. I can't remember which one dies first. Uh, well, yeah. Uh, we don't we don't know which one dies first because they're not really worth remembering the names of. <laughs> uh, they just they just women to be fridged. Oh, I think I think he, d- he gives his characters a little more a little oh, more respect yeah, than that. Yeah, yeah, he totally does. Yeah, yeah, he absolutely does. That is just me throwing that in to make you laugh. <laughs> Um, so the way the way it's it's structured is it, it it climaxes at this moment where he he's forced he's going to be forced to give one of the women dark and fox and this is after having seen the other one after she received the same level of dosage kill herself on the corner of a desk in the research room and so he knows that if he's given the drug to make him do what he has to do he will essentially kill this girl and he doesn't for the first what seems like the first time in he, his life he makes the noble choice he transcends this person who was a killer and who was in prison for killing and who feels pretty damn terrible about it but it's this majestic moment where he he steps beyond that it is such an escape for us the reader and for the character in the way that Sandra structured it you're right because of the way it builds slowly into this horrible place and uh, one of the things that's beautiful about it is the story, like a lot of Saunders stories, for so long exists in a kind of corporate cliche, short, jilted speech with very little in the way of description. And then the only moments of description are the verbalous descriptions, which we know are an induced state into the character. So in a way, we read them as disconnected. And in the same way, um, emotions are treated in the beginning of the story as just cheap commodities to be uh, induced in people. They, they have no value. Inherent value, yeah. If emotions can just be swapped around and they're just a, a bunch of chemicals, we don't really need to feel empathy for anybody. And then at the end of the story, where he chooses, yeah, to, to make the noble decision, to sacrifice himself, he, literally in the story, lifts out of himself and kind of approaches an angelic presence. But in the same way, the prose casts off any of its limitations. Mm. The, the sentences begin to grow and grow. And the last sentence itself, I was counting, it's like 40 words in the last <laughs> sentence, which is just endless for a George Saunders sentence. When he's looking back at, at the mother of the person that he killed when he was younger, he says, Mike Apple's mom, also in Rochester, a bony, distraught checkmark occupying a slender strip of Mike's bed. Uh, and then when he thinks about Rachel, who he almost could have killed, Rachel below in small workroom four, drawn to the one-way mirror by the sounds of my death. And then when he describes the birds that are out there, outside of the, of the lab. The birds were, it occurred to me, to say, enacting a frantic celebration of day's end. They were manifesting as the earth's bright-colored nerve endings, the sun's descent urging them into activity, filling them individually with life nectar, the life nectar then being passed into the world out of each beak in the form of that bird's distinctive song 
which was in turn an accident of beak shape, throat shape, breast configuration, brain chemistry. Some birds blessed in voice, others cursed, some squawking, others rapturous. The thing that the the verbulace and the, the chemical control allows George Saunders to do in this story is to is to flex the register, right? Both inside of paragraphs and speech and between paragraphs and different people speaking at different times. And I was I was trying to to liken it to something because in some ways you know, we're told as writers, you mustn't you mustn't make it feel written. If 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 readers can feel the author in there manipulating the sentences, then then that's wrong somehow. And yet you can feel George Saunders George. I'm just gonna call him George. You can feel that's fine. George. I mean it's like when we talk about Kelly Link. There's just something. It just is <laughs> George Saunders. You can feel him in there ratcheting it up and pulling it down and yet it is never anything less than beautiful. And what I thought about was when you see a ballerina dance with her partner and all the focus is on the ballerina and she's being lifted and thrown and leaping and and you know the partner is there and in fact she wouldn't be able to move as fast or as freely or as high if he wasn't there and yet you still admire her strength and her beauty and that's what the sentences and the words are to me in this story like you can still feel George Saunders all over it but if you couldn't feel him it wouldn't achieve the same level of, <laughs> of magnificence. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why I love the way the ending works, because I feel like where we see him writing at the beginning, I feel like it is he is in control of that. Because as I read the end of that, once I get into the birds, I forget really that George Saunders is writing this. It mm-hmm. doesn't feel like it's verbal loose at that point. And that's mm-hmm. why it feels so limitless. Um, the the thing you were saying about how you felt George is ignoring, say, the writing advice of, of don't let people see you writing. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. I remember him saying once that he felt like for a while he couldn't write because he was like, I can't, I, I just don't, I'm not good at writing scene description. All of these things I read, there's this beautiful imagery of stuff, and I suck at it. And then he said he was reading Kurt Vonnegut, and he, and he was reading things that Vonnegut had written and reading essays that Vonnegut had said, and he realized at some point, he was like, yeah, I mean, like, when you see a tree, it's a tree, Everyone knows what a tree looks like. You don't have to tell people about the leaves and about you. It is possible to just say there was a tree and I sat beside it. <laughs> um, that is okay. And it's incredibly freeing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the feeling I get when I read Saunders stories, someone entirely free to just write the way they want to write. All of this story, the emotion isn't really pulled out of the imagery so much as the construction of the dialogue between characters and just the drama of the choices they have to make. That is all you need. So there's something at the sentence level that he does that I adore. It should be awkward. A lot of his sentences, when you look at them, you think they should be awkward and they don't they're not they turn out to be beautiful so there's this one that says uh we cuddled with a fierceness slash focus that revealed the fierceness slash focus with which we had fucked there was nothing less about cuddling vis-a-vis fucking is what i mean to say and i read that and i think it should be awkward and it's not and i'm not sure exactly what (laughs) he's done to to make it feel so beautiful for me a lot of the beauty is the freedom with which it is said and and the building of precision 
like the way the verbal loose works in a way is he he begins with a very precise description of what he's really good at which is mirroring the kind of banality of the way people talk so at the beginning is like you know when we started fucking you know this feels good then there's a bit where he starts describing and you're right in a way that sounds kind of awkward uh how it feels to be in love. And he describes it mm. as the formation of a desire that you never knew you had, but now have incredibly deeply, and which is at the same moment that you're having it, being immediately, uh, satisfied. being immediately satisfied by the person you're with. It's beautiful in large part because it, it reaches... Uh, it reaches truth. Saunders is ridiculously good at rendering a kind of malevolent nonsense into his stories. His characters are really good at making horrible things seem both inevitable uh, and really no one's fault, which I, which I feel like is his, his answer to, to the world, to politics. He's like, this is the problem with the world. People mm-hmm. are really good at imagining things are inevitable and no one's fault. And there's like one point when Jeff is not wanting to darken Flock's Rachel, because he knows she will probably kill herself, where Abnesti says, what's the problem, Jeff? I don't want to kill Rachel, I said. This is Jeff. Uh, and then Abnesti says, well, who does? Do I? Do you, Verlaine? No, Verlaine, said over the PA. Jeff, maybe you're overthinking this, Abnesti said. Is it possible the darken Flox will kill Rachel? Sure. We have the Heather precedent. On the other hand, Rachel may be stronger. She seems a little larger. She's actually a little smaller, Verlaine said. Well, maybe she's tougher, Amnesty said. It's like this story is exploration of the idea that all that is needed for evil to triumph is for good men to stand by and watch. Well, well, because also, they're just doing as they're told, going with the flow, even though clearly the flow is truly evil. Yes. I would go eviler than that in the sense that I don't think they're standing by. I think they are actively taking part mm-hmm. in denying their responsibility for what's yeah, happening. that's true. Such that I wrote, I wrote a little poem in response to this story. Oh it goes like this. I'm not saying what they're doing is worse than murder. I can't. What's worse than removing one of God's unique creatures from the earth? And by creatures, I mean humans, of course. What could be worse than, than snuffing out a person's whole past and future? That's got to be worse than making a person live through the torture of being treated as inhuman and also forced to treat others as inhuman, right? Sure. I mean, I know it sounds bad. I mean, maybe it sounds worse than murder, but at least you were alive. I mean, you're alive, right? What's better than that? Nothing. Nothing's better than being alive. That is how Saunders' stories work, like how the characters work. They will ask themselves a question like, is this worse? Is this bad? And then they will kind of answer it. And then in the course of a series of... It'll be horribly wrong. Yeah, yeah, it'll be hard. They will answer it horribly wrong. And then it's like through a series of really illogical sentences end up at a completely different point, but with with an absurd amount of certainty. And it's, it's hilarious and it's sad. And this story in particular is funnier and sadder but uh, way more beautiful than a lot of Sandra's stories. And that's why I like it so much. My pick for this week is uh, Bed Among the Lentils by Alan Bennett, which is a monologue from 1987. Snap! <laughs> Alan Bennett! <laughs> yeah. Who's Alan Bennett? Am I- the famous British playwright. Oops. <laughs> I mean, like, there, there, is, there, there, there is your hegemony. Your hegemony right there. Does, does George Saunders need an introduction? No. Do I think Alan Bennett needs an introduction? Yes. Yes, I do. We have links and show notes. They can really figure it out. They do. Yes. But I feel like part of the joy of this discussion is that Saunders and Bennett 
are generally considered rightfully at the top of a, of a certain kind of writing, and that is why we're talking about them. It's true, and they are, they are writers that we both love, that we have introduced each other to, that have a huge amount of similarity in, in what they do and the way that they take kind of everyday banal existence and lift it up to this glorified <laughs> horrific kind of way of life yeah yeah i mean i would i would hesitate to say it's glorified i don't think they're they're, they're making the banality necessarily seem glorious maybe beautiful and transcendent mm-hmm. um but in the way that i guess what i mean is that they they both treat average everyday experience with a huge amount of respect and and Yes. unpick it in a way that is um detailed and um brings it up into being this higher existence i think i think that that's exactly the it. i don't think they bring it into a higher existence i think they bring to our attention the the higher existence at which it already exists they are not glorifying it they, yeah, are, just they are just raising reminding it us. to our attention yeah they're like, reminding look, us we should pay attention yeah yeah which it's back to one of my favorite phrases. I think it's something that uh, Zadie Smith said, which was, "Love is how you spend your attention." Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna introduce it now. Um, Pay attention, readers. <laughs> so, "Bed Among the Lentils" is a monologue from the perspective of Susan, who is wife to the vicar of somewhere terrifying, terrifyingly small near the city of Leeds in Yorkshire. And originally, this character was played by Maggie Smith on British TV in 1987. You may know her from her extended role in Downton Abbey as, fill in the name here, please. I don't know, I've never seen it. Um, that's what Americans will know her from, right? The, the Dowager. The, the a, old one. The Dowager. Is that a word, Dowager? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, she's the, she's the Dowager. Also, uh, Harry Potter. Oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> she's she's Professor McGonagall. Professor McGonagall. Uh, Susan, I'll do the whole introduction in my Scottish. No, I won't. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Scott. Do the whole introduction Um, in my Scottish. Susan is disappointed with her role as vicar's wife and her inability to play it to the standard that she thinks Geoffrey and the rest of the parish require. Susan's an alcoholic and she's run up debt at the local shop, steals the communion wine and continually falls down steps and spills things over people because she's drunk all the time. The story or her monologue pivots around her... Uh, affair kind of like an accidental affair it seems with an asian shopkeeper called ramesh who is 26 and has beautiful legs and you feel a little bit like in poor susan's life it's the only beautiful thing she's ever seen these amazing legs that belong to ramesh anyway eventually he asks her to sober up and he asks her out of i guess love for her but also a self-respect like he doesn't want to continue to sleep with her while she's drunk he the shopkeeper uh i believe is from uh india or is it pakistan i don't know because she just refers to him as she's not she's not up with uh Um, he is uh, a person of color and he is a little bit concerned that maybe she just drinks a lot so that she can deal with the fact that he's a person of color and either way if that's not the case wouldn't it be cool if you were sober yeah and it would be yeah and so he does what she can't do for herself and what Jeffrey, her husband, can't do for her. And he asks her this. And so she she goes to AA and gets clean. And Jeffrey, being the egocentric Egypt that he is, takes the credit. Yeah. Um, the, I mean, there's so many, so many things I love about this. But the the central kind of heart of it, well, it's the heart of the story in that it's a comedy about an alcoholic. But it's not taking the piss out of... Oh, doesn't isn't it 
she's doing all these terrible things because she's an alcoholic. What he's poking fun at is the denial and the gossip and the sideways marks remarks that Jeffrey and the other parishioners make at her expense. He's poking fun at the way the kind of British stiff upper lip and inability to engage in emotional conversations means that everybody knows she's a drunk and no one is saying anything to her or helping her with it. Which, which is interesting because I think if you've never read this story before, when you read it, the story does not engage with the fact that she's drunk until really near the end when it becomes obvious that she's drunk. In part, it becomes obvious because she's at an AA meeting. Um, but it doesn't even say she drinks for most of the story. She goes to the off-license mm -hmm. and makes a comment that the person isn't smiling at her, and that's ridiculous because doesn't she spend enough money here? Yeah. Uh, and there's a comment that she goes to the vestry to calm her shattered nerves, which happens to be where the communion wine is. Um, so the, yeah, the story enacts itself, what you're saying. The story will not admit that mm -hmm. she's a drunkard until very late in the story. And one of the things that I know in a lot of Bennett stories, and I know in this story, is how good, how good, yes, you're right, it is funny. But when I read these stories, I tend to have a much smaller smile and cringe in the way you would expect of a British comedy. This is, this is, you can look in a lot of ways at George Saunders stories and Alan Bennett stories and just be like, George Saunders is writing where the office has a character that you can almost like, even when he's horrible. And this story by Bennett is existing in the British office world where this lady, I, I, you don't know if you really want to spend time with her, but you are kind of cringing and laughing. Um, this story is really good at sublimated anger. And mm -hmm. one of the things... It's a painful kind of comedy. Yeah, it was interesting to me that you described it as that because I find it kind of funny, but it's like you, you describe it and maybe that exists in this country as full on. This is comedy. This story of a depressed, alcoholic woman <laughs> in which the only humor is in the way that people insult each other as an outward expression of their own inward fears and doubts. Well, I would say it's and a satire or a black comedy. I wouldn't, I mean, it's not a straight up knock about slapstick comedy. People often judge others most harshly for those things that they cannot find the strength to judge within themselves. Uh, and there's a bit where she's so upset, this character, and she, she has uh, presumably gotten drunk. And she begins berating this other woman for the, the paucity and the ridiculousness of her flower arrangements and attempts to demonstrate how dangerous the flower arrangements are by climbing into the flower arrangement and walking around and then proceeds to fall down uh, and injure herself. But it's, it has such quiet desperation. Yeah, 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 exactly. This story... It is interesting that like my mom would, would hate it in the sense that she feels like it's inviting us to laugh at the despair of these people. Yeah, I can see that. And I, I think there have been times in my life where I've I've struggled to enjoy stories like this that, that seem to be doing that. Mm -hmm. And those are probably the times where I've been closest to despair. But when I'm feeling buoyant and pretty happy and like, hey, I'm my... I am taking steps to make sure my life is not full of despair, then it becomes much easier to absorb and enjoy. What is not yours is not yours, Emma. <laughs> the, the story's despair doesn't have to become yours. Yeah, I think 
Yeah, but that I'm is porous, a good point. And that's what yeah. happens with stories. Well, is. yeah, I'm porous too. And exactly though, that is off topic. That is like the point of the wisdom is, yeah, we are porous beings. Part of Oyemi's stories are how do we exist as semi-permeable imaginary beings in the world? Like how do we negotiate that? This isn't even in the notes, but it's worth talking about. I think what you describe or how I describe my mom reacting to Alan Bennett would be how she probably reacted to George Saunders as well. And it is a, it can sometimes seem very subtle in their work, and then sometimes not subtle at all. Like I think in this story, Bed Among the Lentils, I'm not invited to laugh at her despair without also being invited to look at this woman as someone who matters and whose struggles matter and who at the end feels like she's kind of taken a step by this connection to an outside person. You know, footnote, here's another story of someone trapped in a difficult position who, who because she makes a connection with another human being, you know, has a chance to escape her prison. Um, like with Michael doesn't hate his mother. Um, and w- when I was reading this story, I thought, my God, this is the opposite of John Green. <laughs> like, this entire story exists in a register that is the opposite of John Green. Because, uh, like, John, John Green's books are full of possibility and the great perhaps, and characters speak at a register almost non-existent <laughs> anywhere in the world except in John Green's head. Um, and this, the characters in, in Alan Bennett's story absolutely speak at the register of what I think pejoratively people think of as like normal people. This is normal people speak. They, they are not hyper-literate. They are not uh, seemingly super intelligent. They speak in tiny lies. Uh, that is a good phrase. Yeah, they do. And so in the George Saunders stories, the characters speak in giant lies. John Green made this commencement speech at Kenyon that we watched that is beautiful and amazing. And one of the things that he says in that commencement speech is that when he was young, he thought adulthood was a zombie plague that you tried to escape. And that one of the things about being an adult was having to know about insurance and having to figure out with your damn community council or whatever how high your grass should be. And it's only now, in his slightly more mature years, that he's begun to understand that all of that ridiculousness is human beings trying to figure out what their neighborhood is going to look like, how to figure out how they're going to relate to each other. It reminded me of what Bennett is doing in the story and helped me listen to what he was doing, which is to remember how the everyday in common is is also the always and the mythic. It is it is the, the the landscape on which we enact, like you say, the tiny lies. But in another way, the the, the tragedies and the joys of life are in all of these moments. And Bennett is really good at, at putting that out there and at rendering <laughs> that. Yeah, and he's he's uh, excellent at showing us the hypocrisy that that builds up into the way these people profess to be religious compassionate people caring for each other but that they they let susan operate as an alcoholic they are mean to each other they um you know they they hide behind the tiny lies susan and jeffrey never discuss their belief in god even though he's a vicar um they never say what they think and they just run along these grooves that they've allowed themselves to to dig yeah, I think that it is an interesting uh, dichotomy because in some ways we would imagine these are conversations that don't matter, but they are constantly lying about them. And so like to me, the, the hypocrisy is is separate from it being small. I want to say one thing about Jeffrey and what an awful human being he seems to be because we're in Susan's perspective. <laughs> I don't know if he really is an awful human being, but 
he seems so patronizing and he sees Susan as a prop in his own life. Like he is the heroic vicar and she is merely the vicar's wife. The, the inverse of what I was thinking earlier about how you judge people harshly for what you can't find the strength to judge within yourself. I, I think it, like Susan is the definition of a kind of uh, unreliable narrator. Well, she will denigrate other people for living the life that she can't live. Mm. Like she was at one point, somebody runs up to the vicar and she's like, oh, this lady will never miss an opportunity. Mm. And you're like, oh. Why don't you take uh, because an opportunity, Susan? Yeah, Susan. You, you, <laughs> you miss them all. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I just had that. When you treat someone as less than human, like he treats Susan, they feel less than human. And whatever small vestige of self-esteem they had gets washed away. And and so you see mm. what this what this monologue does, or at least, you know, what we imagine it does from Su- inside Susan's perspective is is paint how that responsibility sits across not just Susan, but Jeffrey as well and his inability to engage. I would not not say that. Like, I guess I'm very much in the what is not yours, not yours mindset right now. Like, yeah, all of those other people fail as well. And one of the things that jumped out at the story to me is that, you know how we how we've said a few times about the magic in the story working against people mm-hmm. like it happens in this story too it's useful to remember that it doesn't have to be actual magic in your story that works against your characters or you, or you could think of it as you know have a broader conception of what magic is people it exists in the real world you just open your open your mind a little bit because when she makes the connection with the shop the shop dude he speaks uh he sees her as someone who is worth trying to help mm-hmm. and so that that is important, and it does help her change. I would not blame the other people for not doing it. Uh, I would just feel sad about them yeah. uh, for being that way. But but that change that begins to take place in her, where she begins to imagine herself as being someone else, the vicar takes that as his story and God's story. <laughs> and that is what I mean about the, the magic in the story working against her, because the the moment and the thing that begins to give her a way out of her world is also the thing that begins to imprison her more in the world. And then it is up to her to decide, well, am I going to push harder to get free or am I going to let this narrative that is trying to eat my narrative swallow me whole and I'll just go back to be what I was. Yeah, going back to be the vicar's wife. Thanks for listening, readers. We didn't talk about all the stories. We didn't even talk about all the things about these stories. So if you have any thoughts of stories we should read or things we should have said or things you would like to say to us, you can find us on Twitter. We are at Storyological, which is story. Like the word. Oh. Like. I'm looking around the room. <laughs> looking around the room. Like. Oh, no. Look out. It's the letter O coming to eat me. And logical. Like most of the things that I don't say. Uh, you can follow Emma on Twitter. She is at E.G. Kosh. That is spelled at E.G. Kosh. <laughs> and you can follow him on Twitter at Kuvals. If you have enjoyed listening, then we would love it if you would head over to iTunes and leave us some of your enjoyment in the shape of a review. For show notes, appropriate gifts, a chance to subscribe to our newsletter and this podcast, You can always find us at our home on the web. Storyological.com. See you next week, readers. Happy reading. A lot of people say a horse is a horse. But who knows? Who knows?
And now, Boston with more than a feeling. <laughs> <laughs>